Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's telling us there's going to be a financial accident or recession. When you get in, you can get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is really profitable. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Today's topic is CRE, and that is on a lot of people's minds right now. We're joined by two, and I'm happy to say Chicago-based experts in the field. Doug Lyons, Managing Principal of Pearlmark, responsible for the firm's capital markets and debt investment activities. And we're joined by Steve Quazzo, co-founder, CEO, and chair of the firm's management committee and the PEP2 Investment Committee. Gentlemen, welcome. It's a beautiful day here in Chicago, and it's great to see you both. Thank you. Likewise, Stuart. Thanks for taking the time. So before we get going too far, let's just start the way we always do. So I want to make it quick because there's two of you guys. Where did you grow up, your hometown? What was your first job, not the fancy one? And what makes insurance asset management so cool? Steve, I'll start with you. Okay. I grew up in the uh, New York area, born in New York and grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, home of Yogi Berra and today Stephen Colbert. My first job was working as a referee, a sports official. I ran the uh, intramural athletic program at our uh, college. It was a great paying job, a way to uh, fund my beer money. And I learned a lot about people and athletes and uh, competition. So it was a great, great start. And then why is insurance? That was the third part of your question. Yeah. <laughs> what makes insurance asset management cool to you, do you think? I'm not sure anyone's ever answered that question affirmatively. Um, no, we, we 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 like real estate. Real estate is fun. I think the asset management part of it and the investment part of it for insurance companies has been a great benefit. And we enjoy working with the client base. And you know, I think we enjoy the long-term nature of the asset class and making good investment decisions and, and managing risk. Yeah, I think the ALM alignment between insurance companies and real estate mix is pretty obvious. Doug, how about you? Where'd you grow up? How about this? High school mascot. This is a good one. So I grew up in New England and my high school mascot was the Pelican. Nice. People don't realize the Pelicans are famous because they sacrifice themselves to feed their young in times of duress. And my high school was started by a, a family that lost all of their children and they started the school. So they chose the Pelican. Wow. What an interesting story. That's so cool. Very cool. Yep. So that's where I grew up. And your other questions were, again, I would like to take on, you know, why insurance AUM uh, or <laughs> asset management is cool. For me, it's cool. Because we've had so many outstanding relationships. We're, we're a real estate investment manager. Many insurance companies have been involved early, early in our business. And the thing that I think is really cool about insurance asset management is the long-term relationship nature that the business and the industry has. Once you create relationships and you're successful together, those relationships can last an entire career. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this is a community, especially on our air, right? There's a community here and people have worked together for a really long time. And 
there's a lot of really smart people in this industry and there's a lot of really nice people in this industry too. Absolutely. Now the first job, I did miss the first job. I had the local downtown paper route in Wayland, Massachusetts. I was an early entrepreneur. I had to go out and sell subscriptions to newspapers, to the local businesses. And I ran that paper route and effectively then sold it to someone else. So I did that at an early age. Wow, that's awesome. So I think it's interesting to understand why people get into a particular field. And a lot of times in the insurance business, you hear somebody say, I fell into it, whatever. But you guys have been in the in the real estate sector for a long time. What got you there originally and what's kept you there? So, Stuart, the, the pathway for me was really through Wall Street and through finance. And that's why I started my career really right after college. During business school, I had an opportunity the summer between years to work for a real estate investment bank. And that really is what kind of turned me on to real estate. Uh, I remember one of our first assignments was selling a portfolio of industrial properties in Houston. And so, you know, the opportunity to kind of fly down to Houston, I actually got my first helicopter ride because that was the only way to efficiently see all the properties and kind of understand what made Houston tick, what made this real estate successful. That, you know, was interesting to me. Because obviously, Houston's a lot different than, say, Silicon Valley in terms of what makes it tick. And so I I think that's when I got the bug. You know, finance to me was getting a little boring when you're doing a commercial paper issuance for Ford Motor Company. That's not really exciting. But when you're selling a portfolio or, or you're financing a portfolio for an entrepreneur, you're having a huge impact on their net worth and it's much more immediate. So that that sort of hooked me. And after business school, you know, in 86, when I graduated, I went into real estate and have been there ever since. Wow, that's cool. How about you, Doug? Yeah, um, not surprisingly, my progression is very similar given that Steve and I have worked together for close <laughs> to 30 years. <laughs> but my early introduction to the business was actually through my father. He worked for Cushman and Wakefield, which was at the time a national real estate services brokerage company. And so my my summers in high school and college, I uh, was an intern running for commercial real estate brokers. And it was a great early introduction to the business and a lot of characters, a very entrepreneurial business. I then, similar to Steve, out of college, moved to Wall Street to work in real estate investment banking did that for five years and then really got bitten by the bug and wanted to make the move to the principal side of the business. And that's when I, I moved to Chicago to join Steve working for Sam Zell, uh, who's a pretty famous entrepreneur here. And it's been wonderful. I, I go back to my earlier comments in terms of relationships. Real estate is very relationship oriented. It's very transactional. Uh, You've got to be a really good entrepreneur, but you've also got to be sound in terms of risk and portfolio management. And it's been really fun to to build a business with Steve as my partner. Yeah. I mean, you're leading me right to my next question, which is that you both worked under Sam Zell, who is Chicago royalty and a, a legendary figure in the real estate market. What led you there and what did you learn? from your experience there? So Sam was a a client of mine 
when I was working at Goldman Sachs in the real estate area. And so I got to know him. And then he hired one of my other colleagues there. And so I've had the opportunity to join there. And I was pretty excited to make the transition from sort of an advisor, banker, if you will, to a principal investor. And I think right out of the chute, you know, the first thing you learn is it's a lot different when you're investing your own money in specific investments. Before you were just dispensing advice and hey, it could go up, it could go down. But when you're investing your own money, it's a very different sort of degree and discipline and analysis. And so that was probably, you know, the day one lesson. I would say, secondly, being a real estate operator, I mean, people sometimes think of real estate as sort of a passive asset class. And it, it's really, it's not like owning a bond. You know, it's very, very active, very operational intensive. And you really have to understand what drives demand. You know, Sam used to, you know, he had a lot of great lines that we could spend the whole show on that. But one of them was when he was talking about retail, he would say, sometimes free rent in retail is too much. You know, meaning the location's so bad that even if they gave it to you for free, if there was no foot traffic, you know, you couldn't run a business out of there. And so one of the things that we certainly do to this day is why do tenants want to be in this particular building, whether it's office, industrial, apartment, whatever? What's your moat, as Warren Buffett likes to say? So that was something. And then I think lastly, well, I've been learning a lot of things, but I think the last really big thing early on was real estate. Yes, it's about location, but it's really about cash flow. And Sam used to say that real estate investors tend to make the best corporate investors because they really understand cash flow. And I think looking at what happens below the net operating income line is really, really important. And so focusing on you know recurring capital expenditures is really, really important. What do you bring into the bottom line on a recurring basis? It's one of the reasons why Sam liked the manufactured housing industry so much and why he liked apartments so much is because they tend to have very little recurring CapEx, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you have office and retail. And so those were great lessons early on. And, uh, you know, being with them for five years was terrific. Obviously, it's, it's how, you know, Doug and I met when Doug joined me there. And uh, as he said, that was over 30 years ago. How about you, Doug? For me, joining Sam's organization and, and really working closely with Steve early in my career was, was outstanding mainly because I had a lot of direct exposure at a young age to Sam. And the two things that struck me were his incredibly astute judgment of character and the people that he would surround himself with to arrive arrive at good decisions, but also his incredible ability to assess risk and return very quickly and move on. Very cool. So Pearlmark did a transaction with our long-term client, Conning. And so can you tell us a little bit about how that relationship started and how did you end up joining Conning? We were introduced through an intermediary. While we had heard of Conning, we didn't have a prior existing relationship, although it turns out Doug went to business school with the CEO of Conning, so that certainly didn't, didn't hurt. But you know, no, we were really looking to scale our business and distribution is an important component of that. Conning manages $160 billion of AUM, primarily from the insurance industry. 
Doug and I, as, as he previously mentioned, have had a long history with insurance company clients. Our very first investor was our first two investors were insurance companies. Two of our biggest investors today are. We're active in both the credit side of the business and the equity side of the business. So really, on a first blush, it was a terrific fit. And then ultimately, as we got to know each other, and it's a little bit like the gestation period was nine months. So it's, it's definitely like having a child. It, you know, we really got to know each other well, and, and the cultural fit was terrific from the get-go. We knew a couple of their board members, and there was just a lot of connectivity. And so as we sort of dove into what the business plan would be, we really saw that we were very much on the uh, same page. And so we're, you know, we're nine months into it. The investment closed in, in March, and it's about to be December right now. So uh, it's been terrific, and you know, we're pretty excited. That's fantastic. And that's great background and color. We've heard a lot of, of talk about the perils of commercial real estate, particularly in the office sector. I'm seeing a strong return to work. There seems to be people who are coming back to work. I was in London. It was very busy. Been in New York. It's been busy. It's much busier downtown. So can you talk to me a little bit about the perils that we've been hearing about and concerns about it getting worse in 2024 and 2025. I think that most of this criticism or this, most of the concern comes out of office, which certainly CRE is much more than office buildings. Can you talk a little bit about this market and really get a sense for the kind of an unvarnished, you know, neutral view on CRE today? Sure. Steve, why don't I start? And then um, this will be a, you know, a, a longer uh, conversation because there is a, a lot going on and there's a lot to unpack. But your ob- observations as it relates to office are, are spot on. And yes, we are seeing you know, a little more activity here in the downtown market uh, as it relates to return to work. But there's a serious crisis in particular relating to to office assets, and it doesn't just have to do with sort of the occupancy levels. It it, it has to do with with valuations, and it has to do with maturing debt and who holds that maturing debt. And the problem is, you know, the cash flows aren't going to be there to support the debt levels that are currently getting served. And so... There's going to be, and there already is, a, a major repricing as it relates to office assets. And there's a lack of credit availability, uh, liquidity in the capital markets to be able to accommodate even a sale, or a, and that's often today a discounted sale reflecting a, a lender taking assets back. That being said, you know there are still haves and have-nots even in the office industry. You've got high quality office that's well located and people are returning to work and the best office assets are still in demand. But the problem is we have a significant inventory of office that's now uh, obsolete and likely should be uh, demolished at some point. We had a joke earlier in past cycles about retail not being oversupplied, it's under demolished. And I think that similar statement could apply to office today. But we're we're not just office, as you point out. We have 
an apartment sector, we have an industrial sector, and there's some different supply and demand aspects to those asset categories that have made them uh, hold up to what we've seen in terms of a rapid rise in interest rates and and illiquidity in the debt capital markets. You know, with respect to apartments in particular, you've got the agency debt that's still available for financing. So it's not quite as a liquid in terms of where you would go to borrow against multifamily assets because of that. Industrial, you know, you got to get into a discussion on specific markets and and there are some issues now that we're dealing with on oversupply, but those seem to be rather temporary in certain submarkets where there's strong demand. So you really need to dig in to, and this is something that Steve alluded to, the individual submarkets and what are the drivers of demand and where are you in certain terms of supply? And then you step back and you have to look at the capital markets and where are evaluations? Because we do have an issue right now where you've got this rise in interest rates. And so the risk-free rate, you know, if you benchmark relative to a 10-year treasury, that's at around four and a half. Well, it was a lot lower than that two years ago. So what, where should real estate assets be valued? For a while, a year or two ago, they were being valued at four, four and a half percent unlevered yields. Well, if you can buy a treasury at that yield or better, real estate assets need to be valued at higher unlevered yields. So that's an overriding issue that we're dealing with in all of the sectors. I'm happy to comment on 24, but Doug's absolutely right on. And as you alluded to, Stuart, asset types and submarkets matter in investing. And that's part of what we do is trying to distinguish where to invest. We rotated out of office 10 years ago and we rotated out of you know the gateway cities, the so-called gateway cities, you know, the big urban cities five years ago and focused on the Southeast and Southwest where obviously the growth is occurring. But it's the change in the office sector is not cyclical. It's not like 1991 or 2008 or even 2009, it is secular. There is just less demand and there will continue to be less demand. I mean, bring it down to Chicago, our office market is almost 30% vacant. I'd never seen anything like that in 35 years in the business. And it's probably not going to change. So it's going to take a while to sort through all of that. So as, as you look out to 24 and 25, you know the implication based on Doug's commentary about the capital markets and pricing is it's going to be worse. And there's a ticking time bomb out there, which is all the debt that was put into place over the last five years at very low rates and at valuations, particularly on new acquisitions that were at the peak of the market. So as that debt comes due or the interest rate caps associated with the underlying floating rate debt expire, all of a sudden property owners have a heck of a problem. How do I refinance this? In an environment where there's limited liquidity on the credit side, and where valuations are down and where interest rates have basically doubled. So we haven't felt the full impact of this massive rise in interest rates. Now the 10 years pull back a little bit lately, but I have no expectation that it's coming down anytime soon. And so I think it's gonna be 
I mean, selfishly from an investor standpoint, you know, Doug and I, we, where we don't have a lot of legacy issues in our portfolio, it's a very opportune time to be out investing in the market, either from a credit standpoint or from an equity standpoint. So perversely, we're kind of excited about what the next two years are going to bring. That's really interesting. And with regard to, I mean, we're just talking about Chicago, right? You mentioned literally like demolishing buildings, like converting this stuff. What, what I mean, what I know like I am not a CRE guy, right? But I've heard anecdotally that converting to a residential space, as an example, is really not a viable option for most of these buildings. Is that a fair statement? Correct. It's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, you need money. Basically, you need tax abatements or TIF. I'm looking at LaSalle Street right now. And there are four or five potential office conversions to residential. And the only way that they make any sense is if the city dips into its TIF fund and provides, I don't know, I mean, a, a few hundred thousand dollars per unit of subsidy and then throws in some additional tax credits because the basis literally has to be free to negative to make right. the numbers work. So even that's with not- that, some of the mid-block buildings with large floor plates just aren't candidates because you're not going to get enough light and air into those interior apartments. Yeah, that's a great point. I used to work at 30 North LaSalle. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. Yeah, I would think that that's kind of one of those buildings that that you go, it's got potential issues, right? I mean, it just does. Oh, no, it's been taken back already by the lender. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. But look, you got, you know, there are other alternative uses out there, right? I mean, you've got call centers, you've got medical office. A lot of this space, especially on North Michigan Avenue, some of the older office product that's close to the hospital campus can be very easily converted to medical office. It's a great point. So given that backdrop, commercial real estate, how does it, I mean, you work with a lot of insurance companies. It makes sense in that insurers are looking to put money to work in a stable asset class for long periods of time. And that's the kind of capital that you need. So it seems like there's a natural fit. Insurance companies have been big players in real estate for a long, long time. What has been your experience in working with insurers? And the reason that that question really matters is that there was work done several years ago about why CIOs pick up the phone. And as you know, insurance companies are not, you know, you you don't go to a manager database and look at performance because you've got to understand the business that they're in to make it work, right? I mean, it's just the way that it is. And so insurance companies, you know, need somebody who understands the insurance sector and all the externalities that come with it when they're looking at a manager. And I think a lot of people don't really maybe give that as much weight as it actually has in the marketplace. So what's been your experience with insurance companies? You know, as you pointed out, the big insurance companies have been active in real estate really since the 1970s, when you can think back to the Prus and the Mets and the teachers. And initially, the way they got in the business was through the whole loan, you know, lending money, long-term mortgages, going up to the time, probably 70, 75% loan to values and getting good current income. Over time, 
they've also migrated to the equity side of the business of actually owning real estate through a variety of vehicles. And given that insurance companies have a long-term liability stream, as we've mentioned, there are a number of benefits, diversification, current income and upside, say, versus bonds. It's a great inflation hedge, you know, buying hard assets that you can mark rents up, you know, more frequently. The tax benefits, insurance companies are taxable investors, you know, depreciation, et cetera. And the point that they're long dated assets kind of matching the liabilities. So all those are terrific fits. One of the things we've seen, and conning has been extremely helpful in putting a magnifying glass on this, is that the large insurance companies, because they have the resources and the staff to do real estate on a direct basis, they have outperformed the smaller insurance companies who don't have that ability to invest in an asset class like real estate. And it's empirical. Like you can you can look at the data and the returns. And so real estate is a good fit. It's just trying to figure out, as you said, partnering up with the right managers, matching the right strategies, the right risk returns. So it could be credit, it could be equity, but that's really, we've had experience with insurance companies, as I said, from day one in 96, when we started the company, our first two funds were largely driven by insurance companies. Today, our biggest investor on the equity side is, is a life company. Our biggest investor on the, on the credit side is a life company too. So again, just depends. I just wanted to add to that, you know, in terms of our discussions with CIOs too, the fact that we do understand, you know, where real estate fits within an asset allocation and some of the risk-based capital issues that insurance companies deal with and being able to address those risk-based capital issues by creating participation interests in some of our loans has been one of our responses through our ongoing dialogue with our relationships in the insurance industry. And so let me just put my CIO hat on for a minute and ask like this. If I'm going to commit capital to CRE, and I want to give you two scenarios. The first scenario is that I'm looking for current income, stable current income, and I'm trying to avoid issues. And the second scenario is I want to be opportunistic. And I've got dry powder and I've got an appetite for, you know, a strategy that could provide me with outsized returns. So given those two scenarios, where should I be focused in 24-25? Yeah, I'll start. You know, I think on scenario one, uh, credit is just an outstanding place to be. We talked earlier about the illiquidity in the debt capital markets for CRE. And you know, when you look at market share of overall commercial real estate debt, half of it is held by the banks and the banks are not lending. And so there's just a tremendous opportunity for insurance companies to capture market share at a time where you can pursue very conservative underwriting. You can reduce your loan advances. So you're in a, a much better risk return position on senior debt or even you know with our MES strategy, we're only taking 70, 75% last dollar risk. And you can make really strong, secured returns on the senior debt, all current today, right now. It's usually priced at spread over treasury on fixed rate, 
But some of the insurance companies in response to the pullback of the banks are getting into areas like lighter bridge value add, transitional senior lending. Some of the insurance companies are getting into construction lending, but at advance rates at 60, 65%. And the interest rates you're earning right now on those loans, those senior loans are six and a half to eight percent. For credit, if you're willing to take a little more risk in that mez, but managed risk, the interest rates are basically equity-like returns for debt-like structure. So you're earning 12 to 14% on those loans. If you are looking opportunistically, and we think that uh, Steve outlined earlier, there's gonna be tremendous opportunity, not just in office, which we are not very active in. We're looking to be active in multifamily and industrial, but opportunistically taking advantage of some of the turmoil we see coming through the pipeline, you should be able to generate mid to high teens returns if you're investing with a strong asset portfolio manager that's selecting the right assets and the right markets. I really appreciate you both being on. I've learned a lot about the real estate market and I'm just selfishly very happy to meet you both because you're both local Yeah, and we're outside of Chicago as well. So I want to kind of wrap with a question. I have a question for each of you, but you can pick which one takes what. The first question is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? And the second one is, who would you most like to have lunch with, alive or dead? I'll take the first one. The best advice I ever received was pick your mentors wisely. And I passed that same advice on to my son, who's a young adult in the business as well. That's great advice. How about you, Steve? How about for lunch? I would agree with that advice. So uh, I'm going to go with the dinner guests. And being a a government major, I would really want to have dinner with the founding fathers, you know, maybe Madison, Jefferson, and Hamilton, and say, look at the mess we're in today. (laughs) You know, help us think through this. Because look, they had a lot of foresight. And uh, maybe I'd throw in Ben Franklin, too, because he's a wild ass entrepreneur. And I loved him, did a fourth grade paper on him. Always loved him since then. So that would be the the group that I would choose to have dinner with. Wow. That's great. (laughs) I really appreciate you both being on today. Thanks so much for taking the time and thanks for a great education on CRE. Fun to be with you, Stuart. Thank you. Our pleasure. We've been joined today by Doug Lyons, managing principal of Pearlmark, responsible for the firm's capital market and debt investment activities. And Steve Quazzo, co-founder, CEO, and chair of the firm's management committee and the PEP2 investment committee. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Stuart. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.